Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions and securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Reed Griffith, the co-founder and chief investment officer of Tetragon and Polygon. Tetragon is a European-listed public holding company with $38 billion in assets, comprised of $3 billion in direct investments on its balance sheet, and $35 billion at TFG Asset Management, a subsidiary that backs external funds in an array of alternative strategies. Polygon is a $1 billion European event-driven hedge fund within Tetragon that Reed co-founded in 2002 and still serves as its portfolio manager. Our conversation covers Reed's path to investing and experience at hedge funds dating back to the early 1990s. We discuss the founding of Polygon and Tetragon, managing volatility and macro risk, event-driven investing, and TFG Asset Management's partnerships with managers across sourcing, value-add, and alignment. We close by discussing the benefits and drawbacks of being a public company. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, this week, if you happen to be in a married or committed relationship, and one night you turn to your partner and say, hey babe, what do you think? And they turn back and say, sorry hon, not tonight, I have a headache. Why not turn a lemon into lemonade by responding, I have a better idea, let's listen to the Capital Allocators podcast together. You can snuggle up and share a night of stimulating intellectual bonding. Thanks so much for spreading the word to your partner. Please enjoy my conversation with Reed Griffith. Reed, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Ted, for having me. Well, why don't we just go to your background and your path into finance? So I didn't have a clear path into finance until I'd spent a summer working as a summer associate at Goldman Sachs. At the time, I was at Harvard Law School and was cross-enrolling into both MIT and Harvard's business school for financial classes that were going to be relevant to things I was interested in. And I convinced them during my second summer of law school to bring me in as a summer associate. I was told at the time that was the first time that Goldman had ever hired a Harvard Law student or any law student as a summer associate. It was supposed to be for 
business school students, but I managed to convince them that I had what they needed and I had an interesting background for them. So anyway, they let me come in. I worked that summer in the equities division, and that was meant to be a bit of a survey of everything that Goldman Sachs did with regard to stock markets. And I quickly found one particular desk at Goldman that was intriguing to me, and it was the arbitrage desk. And that desk at the time was managed and run by Eric Mindage and his team. Eventually, a lot of them left to set up their own hedge fund, and and some of them went together, some of them went off and did their own things. But it was fascinating because I could see that there were legal and regulatory elements to some of the investments they were making. There were obviously financial elements. It was a largely hedge hedge strategy, both long and short. There was also this element of collecting data, market information, intelligence on what people's views were, collecting sentiment and a variety of things in order to make the investment decision. At this time, I'd been out of the Marine Corps. I was probably 30 years old, 31 years old. And for the first time in my life, I had seen aspects of pretty much everything I had done up to that point. I'd been in the Marine Corps, I had done intelligence work. I had been to law school and was doing a lot of business school classes. I had studied economics and statistics when I was an undergraduate. And suddenly, like all of these things came together in one thing with the promise that you can make money for yourself, for investors, with much less correlation to whether markets go up and markets go down. It intrigued me. It was fascinating. And I knew instantly when I tried to spend as much of my summer working with them as possible, that this is what I wanted to do. And for the first time in my life, it sort of aligned. I was like, wow, I'm 30 years old. I have no idea what I want to do. Now I know what I want to do. It was kind of actually an exciting moment. So most of your academic background is one of those classic acclaimed Harvard, Harvard Law School. The piece in the middle, the Marine Corps and intelligence, is quite different from a lot of people in the business. And I'd love to hear more about what you learned about intelligence and decision-making and analysis in those years that you found translated to that first experience and onwards. When I got into the Marine Corps, I managed to find a path to getting into intelligence right away. What was fascinating about the training was you learned how to take information from all sorts of different sources. Some of it's human intelligence. Some of it would be satellite intelligence. Some of it would be photographic. A variety of different sources and methods that are used by the intelligence community to paint a picture, put a mosaic together. And a lot of time was spent trying to make sure that the information you had was a unique source and it wasn't just a confirmatory thing that you're getting the same thing reported through different sources that ultimately lead to the same place and you're really only hearing the same thing over and over again. That was a key thing to learn is to be able to trace things back to kind of as much as possible first principles to understand, is this really giving me something new? Is this confirmatory or is this just just an echo of something I've already heard? And so that process, that training incredibly valuable for the financial markets, incredibly valuable for making decisions. And I loved it. And it was put into practice over a five-year period and had a big impact on me. So as you got the light bulb, this is what I want to do. I'd love to hear about the early experiences in the hedge fund world before you went and started Polygon. So I was lucky enough to get a job back before people really knew what hedge funds were. So this was back in 1994, 1995. I liked my summer experience at Goldman. It was a great firm, but I didn't want to work at a bank. I wanted to work at something smaller and more entrepreneurial. And I managed to find this firm started by a gentleman named Dick Nye. And Richard Nye had run the arbitrage desk at Goldman. So was well known to people at Goldman Sachs still was actively involved with trading with them at the time that were 
good-sized players in what was then a small industry, Angela Gordon, Weiser Pratt. And I send letters, sit in people's offices sometimes, get thrown out of people's offices for not having an interview and being too persistent. That's all part of it. But Dick Nye took a liking to me and offered me a job once I graduated. And what was fascinating about that first experience was the firm called Baker Nye. At the time, it was started by a gentleman named George Baker, whose family was very wealthy. They had donated the money to Harvard Business Schools, where the Baker Library, the Baker Scholarships, and all these things come from. And that money had met talent. Dick Nye had run the arbitrage desk at Goldman. He was clearly somebody well ahead of his time. He had set up this hedge fund in 1967. Clearly, they were in the first five hedge funds ever launched. The first hedge fund was launched by Alfred Jones, the father of hedge fund investing. He was a professor at Columbia and then eventually went to Fortune and was writing and eventually found a strategy he liked and set up the first hedge fund. But when he had written that article, I think, in Fortune at the time called Fashions and Forecasting, Dick Nye had read it or heard about it when he was at Goldman and immediately was like, I need to go do this and very quickly set up. So when I got there in 1995, it had already been running for 28 years. So here's a hedge fund that was a billion dollars doing what I would call micro investing, focusing on corporations and corporate actions and individual stocks rather than macro investing. At the time, there were people like Steinhardt that were involved, Caxton, Soros, they were the big names in the macro investing. And a big, big macro hedge fund at the time would have been three to five billion. And there were only two or three or four billion dollar what I call micro hedge funds focusing on corporate actions. And Baker and I was one of them. So it was one of the biggest at the time. It had been going for 28 years. They'd already made a fortune. They'd already been very successful for investors. And they knew everything about everything that had happened in Wall Street for the last 28 years. What an amazing place to start your career. Learning from them. They were doing event-driven investing and merger investing. They were doing a little bit of convertible arbitrage, a little bit of distressed but just a fascinating place to start. So I worked there, a small team, can't remember ever leaving the office really, uh, those first few <laughs> years, just trying to absorb what you could absorb. And I then ended up with a friend through a friend who had gone to a startup hedge fund in Chicago called Citadel. And he had been at JP Morgan and he was brought in to set up a event-driven merger arbitrage kind of investment strategy for them. And he was very focused on things in the U.S. I was doing things in the U.S., but I was also doing things in Europe and trying to do things in Asia, which at the time was really just Australia, because that's where you had a lot of liquidity, predictable legal system, language skills that I had none. So, but at least English work in Australia. And so I was doing a lot of things globally where he was doing things in the U.S. And we started talking all the time about investments and trades. And after three or four years, we're pushing on 1998, 1999. I was fascinated with what was happening in Europe at the time. There was a new currency coming, the euro, and you're going to get rid of French francs, German marks, Italian lira. And you're going to go to one currency that was going to break down barriers in Europe and suddenly make Europe much more liquid and much more investable. And that felt like a disruption, a catalyst, and potentially a reason to go to London. And there weren't that many hedge funds in London at the time. Hedge funds were largely a U.S. industry, and it seemed like a great opportunity. And so I spent time talking to the principals at Baker and I about this, and they were supportive. They're like, look, you can go, you can hire a receptionist. You can maybe hire a junior annual analyst and we can make a presence. Now, these guys have been running for 30 years. Again, very successful firm. I'd learned a lot being there, but their ambition was to go and do it, but to do it in more of a controlled, smaller way. And that was sort of the way they were running their business. At the time, Citadel's view was much more ambitious. They wanted to bring all their businesses there. They wanted to hire a much bigger team. And but they didn't have anybody within the firm at the time who wanted to go to London who was significant. And Alex Litowitz, who had set up the merger and event business at Citadel, introduced me to the other partners of Citadel. And we agreed that I should join, come to Chicago, go to London, hire a bunch of people, bring them to Chicago, 
he's, because I'd gone to law school, they're like, well, then you can run the legal and regulatory process as well and set up all the regulatory approvals. And that was a complicated pathway at the time. And so I said, fine, I'll do all that. And we'll get an office set up in London. And I'll go run it for you. And we'll bring all the businesses over. And, you know, we'll start with 15 people rather than three people. And we'll build it to 50 people rather than five people. And that's what attracted me to Citadel at the time. I mean, when I went, they were just approaching a billion. So they were no bigger than Baker and I. In fact, Baker and I was bigger at the time. Everybody was younger and earlier in their career. The energy and the desire was different. Hadn't been in their career for 30 years. They were had been in their career for five years, right? And so it was just a different place. And it felt much more like where I should be going next. And so I joined them. And it was fantastic. And they were amazing people there. And the returns were great. And the ambition was great. And the, the approach was very systematic. I was there for three or four years and enjoyed it very much. But eventually... There was a time when Ken Griffin had decided that he didn't want people who were important in the business partners running bits of his business all over the world. He wanted everybody who was senior to be in Chicago. I was, I think I was the fourth partner of the firm. So I had now been in London for about four years. I was running the event-driven business globally. Alec Litowitz was now off building a long short business and they wanted me to come back to Chicago and get involved in energy trading as well. And anyway, there was a whole desire. And that was a decision point for me. I'd had a great experience. We'd gone from less than a billion to eight billion at this time. Citadel was now one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. I was running London, running Event Driven. And they wanted me to come back to Chicago. I found somebody to be my replacement to administer the office in London and was preparing to go back. But it was a big decision, right? Do I want to go back to Chicago? It's at least a three to five year decision. I like being in London. I was about to have my first child with my wife. And so you have to make a decision. And my decision was, as much as I love the firm and love the opportunity, actually what I really wanted to do was to be an entrepreneur. And so it was at that stage that I decided to leave the firm and to find partners and build a business based out of London, which is what we did. In that decision process, how did you take the framing that you had learned both in your experience investing and prior to that in the military to apply it to that key decision at that moment in your life? It's a good question. And I'm a very methodical person and process thinking person. I'm not impetuous, I would say. So for me, it was a calculation, and as it would be for anybody. Uh, I was, at this point, I'd been involved in investing for only seven years, but I'd had a great experience. I had been at a firm that had been involved in the business for 30 years. I'd learned from people who had been there. I'd helped build a very exciting new business in London for Citadel and open up the approvals, hire all the people, run the office, build the businesses. Even at that time, I'd also helped Citadel open up their office in Tokyo and helped hire the people. And I'd spent some time out there in the first few months when we got that office up and running and came back to London. So I had started and helped build some new businesses for a firm, a great firm like Citadel. Certainly in the London market, I now had some profile because I was, from a regulatory perspective, CEO of London for Citadel and running the event-driven business. We had great had success that was well-known in the market. I didn't have a lot of exposure to investors. I had some exposure, small amount of exposure. Most of the handling of investors was done in Chicago by Ken and other partners that were there. But sometimes people had come to London or wanted to, to meet me as well. And so I'd had some exposure, but it just felt like I'd been at a firm that had been incredibly successful. We'd grown to $8 billion. I'd started a couple of things for them. If I could start these things for Citadel, I could start them again successfully for myself or someone else. I'd run team. I was running a bit large global team of analysts to run the event-driven business. So the investing side was there. The organization and leadership bit was there. Certainly, the only element that was new was the investor side. I had to go out and meet people and raise capital and hire people that could help me do that. And there were some other strategies that we might want to introduce in the firm. So I would need to go out and find other partners potentially to start the business. But I felt like I had the skills. I had just been lucky enough to have had all those experiences early in my career that the timing felt good. Markets felt stable enough as well. You need to have a little runway of a stable world to get a business off the ground as well. And it felt like 
you never know on timing. A macro event can hit you at any time. But it felt like it was an okay time as well to get out and raise some money and, and to try to start something new. So when you set out to form Polygon, based on the investing you had done, what were the core principles of your philosophy and strategy? So I think one of the things is culture. You have to think about what kind of culture you want for your firm, whether you get it perfectly right or not. Hopefully you evolve it correctly over time. But I think that's an important first principle because there's a certain type of people you're looking to partner with and a certain type of people you're looking to hire. And I obviously had experience with hiring a lot of people and seeing a couple of other cultures in the investment community, both Citadel Baker and I before that, and other firms where I had friends and I talked to them about what they'd done. And I think first and foremost for me, I wanted a firm that was collegial. I wanted a firm where people were respectful to each other. And there's lots of examples of very, very successful firms where it's much more of a aggressive, pit people against each other kind of culture, which is great. That can work really well. It just wasn't what I wanted and what I wanted to be presiding over. But I also wanted people who were really, really smart, really, really hardworking, and were kind of mid-career. I didn't want to spend a lot of time with people who hadn't yet made mistakes. As a private market investor, you get at least in your starting gun, you have near perfect information, all the data about the business. You get inside, you can do your surveys of what other competitors are doing and really make a very educated decision at the time you make the investment. Public market investing, it's always investing with bits of information. People are telling you what they want to tell you, not necessarily what the truth is. And you have to glean for yourself. You're going to be wrong a lot and you have to get used to that. And so if you haven't yet made mistakes, you're going to. And it's those mistakes that you learn the most from. So I like the idea of hiring mid-career. I also like the mixed DNA. I didn't want to be a uniculture firm where everybody starts at the bottom and works their way to the top. Again, there are firms that have been very successful doing that on Wall Street. But I wanted a firm where we were constantly refreshing the DNA, where we always had people coming from successful models that might add new things and new ideas to what we were doing and make us better. So mid-career, mixing DNA, people who've made mistakes. And the goal was longevity, getting people that would be sticky and want to stay around for a long time. Now, obviously, if you made a mistake in hiring or it doesn't work, you have to make those decisions. But you try to do as much of that up front through a rigorous screening process I feel very strongly that loyalty needs to be a two-way street. You want people to be loyal to you, but you need to try to be loyal to them as well and make sure that you're thinking about their careers and making sure the hiring was well thought through so that there's as few mistakes as possible. So that's kind of when we were looking to get going, you had to think that through as kind of first principles. And then from there, it's like, okay, what strategies and who's available and how do you want to move forward? But I think we led with culture. On the strategy side... You focused in Europe in this event strategy for a long time. What are the idiosyncrasies of Europe compared to a similar event-driven strategy in the US? By being in Europe, what I've seen and learned has been to live through much more volatile events on a macro side. Markets have not gone up and to the right like they have in the US. Since 2008, other than the last 12 months, the U.S. market was just up and to the right. There are a lot of people who are in the middle of their careers who've only seen getting long risk benefit. And those who took the most risk made the most. And it's a self-reinforcing thing. In Europe, it has been a massive roller coaster. In fact, what we're seeing this year is nothing. I mean, the fact that markets were down 20 since 2008, we've had periods of down 40 in Europe over periods of time, let alone down 20, plenty of down 20s. From a European perspective, the volatility this year is not very much. You've got obviously a war we're dealing with in Europe right now at our doorstep. It's a big deal. We dealt with Brexit. People thought that Greece would potentially be leaving the euro. And what did that mean? And the peripheral would have been sovereign defaults in Europe. A whole series of things that people got very concerned about over the last 10, 15 years that led to a lot of this volatility. And so being someone who's been focused on Europe, we have had to manage volatility. You've had to be hedged. You've had to get to the other side. You've had to be able to 
craft your portfolio in a way that allowed you to hold on to risk at the right time and benefit from when things normalize, not to have to sell at the bottom and and to be forced to buy at the top, which has happened to many of our peers in Europe. And so for those who've survived and maybe even thrived, you've learned so much over the last 20 years in Europe, where if you were just focused on the US, you've missed. Now, the next five years in Europe may be much more volatile. If you don't have the toolkit, you're going to build the toolkit, but you're building it rather than employing it. So I think that is a valuable experience for anybody who has been getting through the last couple of decades of Europe. You mentioned that Baker Nye was the micro-investing, so looking at companies. What you've described in Europe comes from that macro side. How have you brought those two together, as you said, to be able to manage through these volatile markets? Well, I think that's a, first of all, great question. Europe, you have not been able to strip the macro from the micro because the macro has been driving the micro for much of the last two decades. In the US, it's been much less so. 2008, obviously, was a very macro-driven event. But post that, in the US, macro strategies, just focusing on the US, there was less to play for. You've seen that macro volatility in the last 12 months has led to macro funds doing extremely well. And there was a period of time where it's extremely hard for macro funds to make any money because it was just sort of trending one way. And so in the US, you've been very much, I think, much more able to just focus on the micro and the investing in corporates, et cetera. And only in the last 12 months have people really had to take a step back and go, what's my overlay? Where are we in the cycle? In Europe, you've been unable to strip the micro investing away from the macro. And it's led to changes in investor appetite, flows of funds. It's been driving the market much more than even the corporate strategy. I'd say the macro element has been more than 50% of what's driven Europe over the last 15 years. So you've had to learn to do both. And I think that is interesting. And that's something I very much have learned since we've set up Tetragon and Polygon and all the other businesses that we've done is to be much better at the macro than maybe the toolkit I had learned at Baker and I and Citadel, just because macro events weren't the big drivers over the period of time I was there. That being said, 1998 was a very interesting year, the Asia crisis. And I was just joining Citadel at the time. And I saw how they navigated through that. And they were very successful in getting through that and being able to hold on to the risk when others had to sell. And so I did learn some things about structure and, and making sure that your capital is there when you need it. What are your relationship with your prime brokers? All these things I learned, which were very valuable. So there were macro events, but just it wasn't a constant like it has been in Europe. What are some of those tools that you use in portfolio construction to be able to manage around the macro risks? Well, first and foremost, you need to think about whether the next events you perceive are priced in appropriately by the market. So if the market perceives as you perceive, if you, so if there's a risk that you perceive differently and you think it's more risky or less risky, you can be long and short risk. It could be through options. It could be through long and shorting various, could be sovereign instruments, currencies, various other things as part of your portfolio hedging. But if the market is already anticipating what you're anticipating, it's priced in and there's probably nothing you can use. But what I've often seen is that there has been mispricing in Europe in what I perceive to be short duration risk, things that might happen in the next two or three months that could be very volatile. And you've been able to buy the equity market or currency or shorting sovereigns in certain peripheral countries at various times for very little cost and adding those layers in your portfolio. If the bad thing didn't happen, great. It didn't cost you much. If the bad thing did happen, it saved you money and gave you a chance to be in a better position than your competitors when you're trying to reshape your portfolio, should that thing happen. And so there's been a lot of things in Europe like that. Not always, but often been things that have been too cheap for the ultimate headline risks that were coming. And then at the portfolio level, how have you thought about gross net exposure, factor exposure, things like that in managing through these times? We're involved in lots of different strategies across the firm. But if I just look at that European event strategy for a moment, that strategy has elements to it that are very hard to hedge because it's not like a long, short portfolio where your factor risks are easy to quantify. By their nature, they're involved in some kind of an event. It might be a merger, it might be some kind of a regulatory event, 
litigation, something that's driving their valuation, which makes the recent history not a good predictor of the near term and future. Should the event not happen, should the thing fall apart, yes, the stock may fall back to its historical patterns and correlations and factor risks, et cetera. So they're notoriously difficult portfolios to hedge. One thing is for sure, when you're an event-driven investor, you're short volatility. Volatile events makes events take longer. It reduces the probability of certain events happening. And so what you certainly want to do as much as possible, if you can afford to, if the instrument volatilities aren't so expensive that they're prohibitive to own them, you try to own options and volatility around your portfolio to help reduce those extension risks and other risks that come through. That's a very important component of it. The other is just to make sure that if something bad happens, typically there's an ownership risk. Who owns the things I'm in? Are they the same types of investors? If it's too much hedge funds and hedge funds get have a bad time, all these positions become correlated. Do they all have antitrust risk? Do they all have litigation risk across them? Do they all have some other theme that will suddenly take otherwise uncorrelated stocks and make them correlated? Because all those events become less probable at the same time. So that's the hard thing about event-driven investing is you can't just look at historicals. You have to look at the framework around these names that are going to drive their valuation over a 6, 12, 24-month time frame. And then eventually, they will probably revert back to those historical patterns. But you're dealing with this interim period. So it does make it notoriously difficult to hedge. And also, if you're involved in very idiosyncratic names, there may not be a lot of good comps out there for these names, particularly if you're dealing with small mid-cap stocks rather than just large-cap names as well, that can further complicate it. And so there is definitely a bit of art to it, and there's certainly science to it as well. But knowing all these other things about ownership and other risks that are tying through that may not be apparent from just looking at data are the ways to make sure you can get through the volatile period without unexpected surprises. And some of those lessons were learned the hard way. You can't see and know all that without having done it. And the longer you do these things, I think the more you learn. So I want to shift a little bit. You've talked about a few geometric shapes, polygon and tetragon. Why don't you describe the path from where you started, polygon and event-driven hedge fund, to the scope of what you're doing today? So the names will tell you what our ambition always was which is we were always trying to be multi-sided. So a polygon, a tetragon, they're all multi-sided shapes. And we always aspired to be a firm that was very multi-sided and had lots of different businesses under one umbrella. And that is where we've evolved to. And so as we sit here today, what Tetragon has under its asset management business, TFG asset management is what we call it, is we run about 35 billion of capital for our partner investors. We have two and a half, three billion of our own capital at the core, which we, a lot of that is invested with our managers in TFG Asset Management. And it's also invested with other investments and with other people that we like that have strategies that we don't have on the platform that we want exposure to, et cetera. But that evolution to get to where TFG Asset Management is today was sort of always the plan. We always wanted to get there. And so we've got infrastructure today. We have real estate. We've got commodities. We have litigation finance we're building. We have events and convertibles and distressed and co-investments that we're doing with technology firms and partnering with private equity and venture capital firms to get exposures we like. We're looking at building new businesses. This is where we are today. And it's exciting. And it's across a lot of different asset classes. And what they all have in common is they all have sustainable alpha. They're run by people that we believe are top decile in what they do. We are entrepreneurs and investors, and we try to attract other entrepreneurs and investors. So we're not allocators who say, oh, we're going to help support you to build a business, but we've never really been an investor ourselves, or you have been an investor, we've never been an entrepreneur and built a business. We don't know what you're going through, but we'll support you. Because a lot of times those allocators will also have three or four. If they like, I don't know, structured credit, we have a large structured credit business on the platform as well, uh, LCM, 12 billion of CLO. So people might say, well, I'll invest with three or four. 
uh, businesses like this in credit or structured credit or CLOs and help back them all uh, get up and running. We make a bet. So when we bring somebody on the platform, we're saying, you're our bet. We're going to partner with you. We're entrepreneurs like you. We know what you're going through. In the first five years of you building out your business, we're going to be way more valuable to you than you are to us. But if we're successful, you're going to be way more valuable to us than we are to you in the second five years and beyond. So we have to have the duration of capital. And that's the other advantage we have. That two and a half and three billion of capital is money that has no time horizon on it. It doesn't have to be recycled back to third-party investors. Lots of people who do this are recycling pools of capital to third-party investors. It's not their own capital. So we have long duration. We try to find businesses that we think have that repeatable alpha. We let people run their businesses. If they're ready to run their own business, we'll be on their investment committee, but they control it. They control their brand. We try to partner with people who are number ones in what they do. We don't need a bunch of number twos reporting to us. We need number ones who can go out and build their business and we can help support and make them better. So where we are today has been a journey to find those partners, to build those businesses, to get involved in things that we believe in. And sometimes we're involved in a business that it's never going to be bigger than 300 million, 400 million. Maybe a lot of it's going to be our own capital, but there are other businesses that clearly we can scale to 10 billion and beyond. And And we've had success doing that with at least three businesses on the platform currently and more to come. And that scale has not hurt returns. And I think that's another thing that's important in this alternative investment business. Sometimes the right size is small and you have to be happy with that. You can't grow beyond where that alpha component is going to be reduced. There are plenty of people who are great at running a billion, but then they end up running 5 billion and they still do well, but they don't do nearly as well. And the alpha component becomes mostly beta because they're just sort of in that very highly competitive part of the market where if they'd controlled their size, they would have done much better. So we try to be thoughtful about size as well. When we bring a manager on the platform, where can we take this business? How do we think about it? What resources should we put behind it? There's a lot of interesting aspects of it to break down. So why don't we start with sourcing the opportunity. How do you go about the process of deciding where you want to allocate your capital to? So first and foremost, we'll start with my partners on the strategy level. My fellow founding partner, Patty Deer, Steve Prince, who has joined us to head uh, TFG Asset Management and a senior partner in New York. The three of us spend time thinking about what should we be doing that we're not doing currently? Where do we see in the market that there's alpha? Where do we think alpha will come in a sustainable way? Where will there be appetite for institutional investors to get involved in these products? And then once we find something or two things or three things we think are interesting, we go out and start doing work. And that work can be working with consultants. Tell us, what do you know about this industry? Who do you think is good? What information can you share with us? Obviously, we pay people for data. We run data ourselves, look at people's returns. You know, we start to invest with people. Sometimes small amounts of money we'll, we'll put with them to follow them, follow their letters, learn from them, try to figure out what do we think of their approach. We don't do much investing with other managers. It tends to be very small amounts, but it's just to really get to know them better and to learn about the industry better. So it's quite methodical, right? We try to find things we like. We go through a consulting process. We then try to figure out who's good in the industry. We try to track them through letters. Sometimes we invest with some key people to learn more about it. If we're still finding it's interesting, we start interviewing people from firms we admire to learn about who's available, what are they doing, is our insight correct? And if that all continues to work, then we tend to hire people and build a team, often investing our own capital in the beginning, helping get them going. And then when we think that the team is there and the infrastructure is there and it's up and ready, we then take it to investors with our own capital already there backing them and go forward to help them raise money and to build a brand and go to market with the goal being that we're a force multiplier for them. We're increasing their probability of success. On the people analysis side, you mentioned litigation finance as an area that sounds like it's a newer area in your suite of strategies. How did you go about finding that opportunity set process and then finding the people and what was it about them? Maybe use that as an example to describe the common things you'd say about the types of entrepreneurs you want to be backing. 
We've been looking at litigation finance for a decade, and we've only partnered with somebody in the last two years. So it's been a long process to get where we are today. And so that's, I think, one thing about the example that's interesting is this process of identifying something that's interesting, but trying to figure out when is the right time or when can we find the right partner. These things don't happen in the first two years necessarily of your analysis and work. It might take five years, might take 10 years. You may never get there. In this case, we've gotten there, which makes it a more interesting story than if we hadn't gotten there (laughs) for sure. But I've had a lot of exposure to litigation-driven investments by being an event-driven investor. We have a lot of Harvard Law DNA throughout the Tetragon organization. And the person that we found to partner with had also been there. And so we had a lot of connectivity to him. So we could cross-reference him very well through people that had known him earlier than his investing career, even to build up a picture of the person. My partner, Steve Prince, had also been an allocator before he had joined us and had invested with some of the firms that he was working at before he set off on his own to build a business. And so Brandon Baer, who is the runner of Contingency Capital, which is the the business that we're building on the platform to support Brandon, he had been at D.E. Shaw early in his career and was doing litigation investing at its early stages of development. He put in a sleeve of a strategy involving various credit things. And then he left and was brought over to Fortress and he worked with Pete Brigger's group. And again, was a sleeve of investments within a broader credit strategy that Pete Brigger was running when he added and built the team at Fortress. And then he was now looking to leave Fortress and set up on his own. And so during that time, he himself had realized that litigation finance was becoming a bigger asset class, potentially more institutional. You could build more of a portfolio than you could before where it was a collection of individual trades. It was ready to stand on its own as a strategy rather than just be a sleeve of another. So this is part of the journey we were watching as well over the last 10 years is it's matured as an investment strategy. The people that have been earlier adopters of litigation finance have been what I would call tip of the spear kind of investors. They are people who are helping fund litigation. So if somebody has a claim against a corporation for, I don't know, toxic tort or something, and they need help funding it, these firms that have sprouted up are helping fund litigation. They look at it, they get a percentage, they help put a probability of success on the claim, but it's very much they're involved in funding litigation. For some institutional investors, that's a complicated place to be because there is, quote unquote, reputational risk if you're funding litigation, because you don't know where the spear is going to point. It might get point at one of your competitors. It might point at one of your donors. It could be a bit of a sticky wicket if you're not careful in that. And so we didn't want to be on the tip of the spear. And we watched some very successful firms be built up with funding pools of capital. What that has done is it's drawn attention to the asset cloud and created bigger pools of litigation. And these there's lots of big pools of litigation and claims out there, whether it's at law firms or whether it's settlements for class actions or whether it's on corporate balance sheets. And that capital could be released to the corporate, to the law firm, to the class action litigants earlier, if there was somebody who could provide financing, this is what contingency capital does. It is not the tip of the spear. It's the it's the handle of the spear, right? It's saying, you've got a pool of litigation of settled claims. We can value it and evaluate it for you. And we can be sort of debt against it. We can be a senior claim. We can free up cash. You can take this cash and go pursue more litigation. So if you're generating a 30 plus percent return on your litigation, you know you can pay us much less than that, to free up cash to go off and do what you need to do because you're capital constrained. So we can do those types of investments. There are people who just want their money today and don't want to wait five or 10 years for the money to come in because they want to buy a house today. Or I don't know, if you're a senior partner in a law firm, you don't want to leave it all to the next partners. (laughs) You'd like to have a little bit for yourself before you retire. There's all sorts of different motivations that lead to why people want to release capital in these claims. And that, because the market's matured enough, That's what the market's ready for now. And that's what we're doing at Contingency. There are very few people doing this. There are some, but Brandon has been doing this throughout his career. And so it's all lined up that we knew the person, we could follow him through his career. Steve had invested with him before at various firms or invested in those firms, but got to know him as a person. And so we've been able to line this up and we feel like it's the right time to build this business. 
it has something that's very uncorrelated. It's not tied to the business cycle, right? It's tied to the success of these claims. And so for institutions, that kind of exposure is incredibly valuable, particularly if you're able to generate double-digit returns for people as well, super valuable. And so we believe the demand is there. We believe the product is there. We believe we've got the right partner, building the right team, and it's going great. Been a long journey. One of the things that's interesting is you still are running this event-driven fund, and you're also involved in helping form and back these businesses. You've had a lot of conversations with allocators who have invested in Polygon. What do you think differentiates you when you're talking to someone that you're looking to back from those types of conversations that you've had on the other side of the table? I still own risk every day for the firm, for strategies. So I'm in the market. I'm involved in risk. I'm evaluating investments every day. So like them, I feel the stress of the markets. I'm not somebody above and beyond it, right? I'm there at the coal face with them, understanding what they're going through, hopefully can add some insights to them as well. As a big investor in the fund, we might be a passive investor on their investment committee. We might go through the memos. We might ask questions. That enables me to hopefully give insight. They have control. We give insight and makes me a better investor as well by working with world-class people in other disciplines. It opens my eyes to other things and how to do things and learn. You never want to stop learning. Once you're just listening to your own dialogue and not listening to others, you're not evolving. And in these businesses, they're so competitive. If you're not evolving, you're dying. How are the conversations you have with those managers different from some of the conversations your investors in the event-driven strategy have with you? Some of the investors we have in venture and strategy are incredibly experienced, incredibly knowledgeable. There are some that have amazing insights into what's going on in the world. But there are people that we work with that are less experienced and have less insight or are more focused on one niche. Everybody has something that they can share with you, some more broadly, some more narrowly. But it's a very different decision. I mean, somebody who's investing with us in a product wants to know about that product and how you're going to make money for them and what's the portfolio look like today. And they have their own requirement that they're trying to tick off for sure. And we're not building anything together. They're supporting something that we're doing. But the reality is they probably would rather that business stay as small as possible and rather than grow because you know a lot of people have a bias to things, make higher returns when they're small. By the way, I agree with that. And we do keep things the right size and don't let them get too big. So I share that view. But if I'm working with an entrepreneur, he wants, how do I get into a new strategy? How do I get into a new vertical? Let's think about the broader strategy component. And we can sit and work with them on that. Our investors aren't talking to us about strategy component. Are we going to do a new type of thing at fund? They just want us to do what we're doing today well with their money and not screw it up. As a partner with somebody like Brandon and Contingency, as he evolves his business, we're going to be there trying to help him think about new things that they can be doing and providing solutions to investors. So it's a much more holistic thing. I'm curious how you balance this tension between the business and the performance. So you're on both sides of the fence. You have your capital invested. You want it to compound. Generally speaking, as you said, smaller can be better. But you also own parts of the business and you benefit from their growth. How have you thought about effectively the return on your capital as part of, say, TFG in how you optimize that tension? Sure. We are big investors in our own products. And so when we're generating a return for people, we're generating a return for ourselves. The European Event Fund has a huge amount of my time working with great people on the team there, making sure those returns are good. And if those returns are good, Tetragon's a big investor. It benefits from it. I have personal money in there a lot. I benefit from that as well. If we build something else on the platform that becomes very successful, the insights I learned by building that business about that strategy makes you a much better investor for event-driven and other things. So it's all cumulative. Your exposure to all these different strategies and asset classes can only make me better as CIO of the firm, CIO of the fund. So I think it's additive because you never know where the next opportunity is going to be. Having your eyes open to little niches, what's happening in the market, infrastructure investors, what are they interested in? Well, we have an infrastructure platform. They think that towers are worth this. Well, there is hidden tower value in various portfolios in the market. They think that metering businesses are worth X and Y. And why are they willing to pay for this? What are really water assets worth? Well, you only understand that if you're on the other side and see these deals. So it just makes you better. And so 
In that way, everybody benefits from it. If you get too siloed in what you do, you start missing things. And so for me, my job is to keep my head slightly above the parapet and I see, be aware of what's happening in the market, both for the macro risks that are out there. Sometimes you'll see risks in the credit market before you see them in the equity market. Sometimes it's the opposite. Typically, the equity market is first and credit market is second, but it can vary. So again, having those exposures and to know what's happening there and where there's distress there is distress somewhere else, it may bleed into the market and that may help me with my hedging strategies. So data is good and making sure that you have alignment and making sure you don't have conflicts. When you add that all together, I think it's a good formula. There's one other interesting aspect of Tetragon, which is it's long been a public company. Way back when, subject to an activist campaign, you've probably seen a lot from being a public company and would love to hear your experience on both the benefits and the drawbacks of that. Yeah. So I think the purpose of being a public company was to be able to generate permanent capital that would enable you to do the kind of things we wanted to do with TFG asset management. Probably the best thing that we've got from this public vehicle is the ability to have permanent capital, to be able to have a five, 10-year duration in building businesses, because you need that. And you know, like I said before, the first five years, you're much more valuable to the business than they are to you. If you have to sell it at that point, you're never going to get the value. It's just about to take off. You need to have that. And so we recognize that. And this enabled us to build TFG asset management by going public. So that was the big thing that we got from it. What ultimately happened is this market in Amsterdam turned out not to be that liquid. Not many other people followed. People then moved their listings to London. We've done the same thing. We have a listing in London as well, specialist fund segment. What we have today is a complex business that we try to make more complex. So maybe the negative for public markets is we're complex and we continue to get more complex because our whole raison d'etre is to be there early building businesses that have it sustainable alpha with entrepreneurs and to build it out on the TFG asset management side. And even on the investing side, we're always looking for things that we think have good risk awards. So we are complex. We constantly evolve. It is a difficult thing for people to get their arms around. I understand that. And so that's the complication is telling the story to people. And I'm, what I'm quite proud of is that we have compounded the NAV of the firm in a very consistent way over the 15 years we've been public with very low volatility. I mean, our goal was to do 10 to 15% net after our fees to investors. I think we've done about 12 and the volatility has been quite low. And so we're doing what we set out to do, and that permanent capital has enabled us to do it. And so that's been great. Telling the story is more complicated because we are a complex firm, for sure. Most of these complex asset management firms tend to trade at a discount to whatever NAV is. It's been true in the closed-end fund investment trust space for years. How have you thought about capital structure of Tetragon when it trades at often a meaningful discount to NAV? So yeah, you're right. The KKR vehicle immediately went to a big discount. A lot of these, we trade at a discount, right? So the first thing is we've never issued shares, done a placing or anything like that. We wouldn't do that. I and mean, we have consistently bought back stock in the market since we've been public, you know, as long as we've had the liquidity to do it. We've consistently used that as one of the tools to return value to investors. We obviously try to pay a meaningful dividend to people. And that's one component of returning value. The other is to buy back shares. So that's clearly how we think of it. But we don't exclusively do that. If we buy back shares in the market, we are basically buying more of what we already have, which we think is very good. But we aspire to build new things as well. So we don't want to use all our money to do that. We want to continue to build new businesses, continue to evolve, to continue to grow and do interesting things and provide interesting opportunities for investors. And so that is another use of cash is the new businesses and growing and, and finding interesting things to do. So there's a menu of things that we do and we do it consistently for people. And as a result, the investors who like the story get the benefit of that use of cash. And yeah, if you buy at a discount and sell at a discount, you get the return of NAV along the way. And if we're compounding on a low volatility, hopefully we'll continue to do that in the future, you get the benefit of the structure. So with your investor hat on, how do you think about the case for the stock compared to the case for some of the funds on the TFG platform? Well, as always, it's a case of a pure play versus a diversified play. And it depends what your requirement is at the time. If you look at the stock and say, okay, it's at a discount. Well, if the discount tightens, you'll make a little extra. If the discount widens, you'll make a little less. But basically, over a, any medium-term timeframe, you know, three to five-year investment, your returns are going to be very correlated to the returns of 
all the businesses together. So if you like our suite of businesses and you like the diversification and can own that exposure, so maybe you're a family office and you just like all the different asset classes, so you'll put an allocation into that diversified portfolio. If you're an institutional investor and you want an allocation to European events or you have an allocation to infrastructure or real estate or whatever it is, then you need a pure play investment into one of the funds because that's your mandate. That's what the risk you're looking for. That's what you're targeting. We offer both at the fund level. We offer the pure play. At the stock level, we offer the diversified play and people can pick and choose based on whatever their horizons are. Is there an economic dominance between buying into the underlying strategies pro rata to how TFG is allocated to them compared to owning the stock, which also has an economic interest in the businesses of those strategies? I don't think you can do it perfectly. Obviously, the stock has a certain liquidity to it, um, depending upon the size of your investment, which might be better than the funds themselves, because you can buy and sell the stock where the funds, there's the ability to get in and out. But there are things that we don't offer at the fund level. There are things that we do with our capital on our balance sheet, which isn't replicable, whether it's investments that we just make in public markets or private markets and hold on our balance sheet. Maybe we've invested some money with a strategy we think is interesting that we want to learn more about. And we've got a little money in their fund or made some co-investments or a co-investment strategy with people as well. Those aren't replicable. We're not offering those to investors. And so there is a component of what we do that you don't get if you try to replicate and invest in all the individual funds. And the liquidity would be very different. Some of our funds like infrastructure are 25-year funds. So that's more complicated to get in and get out of unless you're doing a secondary transaction. Some of them are very liquid. The hedge funds can have quarterly liquidity. The stock always has some liquidity every day. And so I don't think it's something that could be done in a meaningfully replicable way. Great. Well, Reed, I'd like to ask you a couple of closing questions before I let you go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I'm a fly fisherman. I love fly fishing, freshwater, saltwater. Something about being on that river really relaxes me. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I'm not a fan of high-frequency trading. So I see it as an arbitrage on retail flows. I know people argue that they're providing liquidity. I don't believe it. It's a high <laughs> short ratio strategy. I don't like things where I think people are making money on almost a structural, in this case, arbitrage. I want people to have to make their money by taking more risk than that. How about on the personal side? What's your biggest personal pet peeve? I don't like being late. I don't like when other people are late. I think we all have to respect each other's time. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So... The decisions I made to get involved in investing, I didn't come from a background where people had been involved in finance. I came from middle of nowhere, Minnesota. So for me, I got it from books. It was books I read. Those were the things that really influenced me. And you know, when I asked other people what I should do, they said, go read books, learn. And so there were a series of books I read. Probably the first one was The Reminiscences of a Stock Operator, Edwin Lefebvre, which sort of described the wild, wild west of emotional trading and flows before the Securities and Exchange Act came into place. It also teaches the importance of regulation. And then it were things like, you got to think of Alfred Jones and what he did with setting up a hedge fund, Peter Lynch, Ben Graham. Of course, everybody's read Benjamin Graham's Intelligent Investor. Jack Schrager wrote these books, Market Wizards, New Market Wizards. I read all these things voraciously. They were kind of accounts of really successful people and how they made money. Those are the things that really had an impact on me on what I wanted to do. So I just say I buried myself in books for a few years, and that's really what helped me get focused. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? I like things where I think I have structural alpha in the strategy. So I want things where the odds are in my favor and my investors' favors. I don't want to be in things that are 52, 48. I'm looking for things with a higher probability and repeatability. So I'm not a gambler. I, mean, I go to Vegas and you know, watch a show, but I'm not going to sit at the tables because I know the odds are against me. So I need to feel like there's a reason I have a strategy that's repeatable, that's investable. And that's what gets me excited. I don't like rolling the dice, let's say. I'd rather hit lots of singles than hit doubles and home runs. It's getting on base consistently is what I try to do. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents were big 
believers in honesty, but also being very straightforward with people. Just tell them respectfully (laughs) what you think, but don't be somebody who isn't straightforward as a person. You don't want that reputation. I try to be a straightforward person and I try to be honest with people. All right, Reed, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? A lot of people say loyalty is a big driver of them as a personality. It certainly is with me. But one of the things I've learned is if you're overly, in the professional context, if you're overly loyal to an individual and give them too many chances, eventually you're disloyal to the team. And ultimately, your loyalty is to the firm and to, to, to a fund or to. And so you have to make those hard decisions sometimes and realize that that is where loyalty need your loyalty needs to be as a leader. And I know that and I learned that sometimes giving people a few too many chances. But I think I'm better with that now. And, and again, if you're, as long as you're a straightforward communicator with people, when it's not working out, they have a chance to change. And if they can't change then they're probably not going to work out long-term anyway. And you give them a, a pathway to finding something else where they'll be more successful. Great. Well, Reed, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Ted. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 